So turn with me to Acts 15, as we will be looking at the rest of this chapter. Acts 15, we'll be starting at verse 22 and going through the end of the chapter. And this is kind of a follow-up of the Jerusalem Council that we looked at that we looked at last week. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask, ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would bless our time in it, that you would help us to see it not just as a little instruction book for life or a book of rules or any of those weird constructs that we come up with, but these are the very words of our creator and our God, our savior, our redeemer, our friend, and these are words for us, your church, and so Lord, we pray that you would use them to grow us in our faith, to convict us of our sin. Grow us together as your people, your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so one thing I realize is from a very early point in my life growing up is that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who put ketchup all over their fries, and there are people who put a little pool of ketchup out to the side and dip their fries in it. All right, you, right. That's that's the two kinds. Are there other kinds? I don't think so. I had a few friends growing up that would cover their fries with ketchup. They were the from the cover with ketchup camp, and I was always convinced that this was the most horrible thing that I could ever see in my life. And I was also convinced that the reason they did that is because they didn't want to share fries with me. They they knew that I was repulsed by just the sight of it, much less having to touch those fries then. And so I think that's why they did that. Who in their right mind put ketchup who put ketchup all over their fries? It should be a crime. It's inconsistent. It makes the fries soggy. They're not edible. They're just a mess at that point. We get a lot of things like this in life, right? There's multiple ways of doing things. We have strong preferences toward one thing or another. It may be situations that don't even have a moral right or wrong, like French fries. Right? But there's, our preferences are so strong that it seems wrong or right to us. It's wrong to cover your fries in ketchup, for instance. Or it's right to pull the covers out before you lay in the bed and not have them tucked in at the end. It's just abhorrent that you would have your covers tucked in at the end of the bed. Or it's right to only sing psalms in worship service. Or it's wrong to use anything but the KJV. A little bit more serious, right? It's right to use tobacco products, or it's wrong to consume alcohol. I think we all agree that these sorts of preferences aren't always as simple as ketchup and french fries. Sometimes there are very good answers for these dilemmas, even when it isn't necessarily a black and white solution. These are things that we can talk about and have good discussions with. In our text today, the Jerusalem Council crafts a letter to be sent to the Gentile churches. And in it, there are some things of this kind. There are some very, there's a very clear ruling on a theological matter that was given to them concerning salvation and circumcision. But then there's a mix of other things. Some that have a very clear right and wrong. Some that aren't so clear. I think that the text from 1 Corinthians 6 this morning really bore those out greatly. We'll also see a division between Paul and Barnabas. 
over a similar kind of thing, a preference, a matter where there may not have been a true correct answer, but yet they divided over it. I think it's helpful for us in dealing with one another and our different preferences that we have, especially concerning spiritual things or in matters of conscience concerning moral issues. We will always have these as people of God. Even when we deal with other Christian denominations, there are some things to divide over, but many, many more that we stand together on. The tact within which this letter is written is very helpful for us in working through some of these issues. I think just you can use this letter as a, as a way to help you think through these issues yourself and how to deal with people that you disagree with. I will look at this letter with three main ideas. First, the letter's contents. Second, the church's response. And then, thirdly, the apostles' division. And so with that, let's read the text together. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 22. Please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, starting at 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So then, they, so then they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from, withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they were separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember last week, we dealt with the Jerusalem Council, this group of elders and apostles who had been set to the task of settling this 
major issue in the church between the Jewish believers and the Gentile converts to the faith, several of the Jews thought that this new Gentile contingent of the church should be circumcised in order to receive salvation. Even Peter and Barnabas were swayed by this idea. And we read about that in Galatians 2. They began to separate from the Gentiles at the table, which is going to just lead towards other separation. This wasn't right. So the Apostle Paul stood up and straightened Peter out, and then he came to the whole council and talked, spoke to the council after he had repented of his ways. Again, this all came back to the council. They ruled that the teachings of Scripture said that believers in Jesus Christ only need believe in him for salvation. That is their only requirement. No other ceremonial law or moral law keeping, just faith in Jesus Christ alone. But you'll remember at the end of last week's text, they tacked on a few other things. We read those again in today's text, that they wanted the new Gentile believers to be practicing. So that's where we're going to focus our time today. It might be easy for us to want to intertwine those two things yet again. Salvation through Christ alone and salvation through law keeping. However, that's not what's going on here, as we'll see. And that brings me to the first point, the letter's contents. Look with me at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men from among the brothers. So they craft this letter that they're going to give to the church. It's not like us. You know, we could just send a letter through email or something like that. But even that wouldn't be appropriate today. In this particular situation where you have this type of dissension that has arose, it is right to not only send a letter from the whole body, but to send people that are representative of that whole body to talk with them about that letter, to, to agree that this is what we have said. It was a good thing to do. It was a show of camaraderie. It was a show of acceptance. Judas called Bar Sabbath, Silas. These were chosen to go back with them. They were probably elders in the church there in Jerusalem. And when they delivered the letter, again, it was just as if the entire church had been there to deliver the letter. The elders were representatives of the church, just like they are today. Not, not representatives like a government, but representatives as in standing for and standing up for and with the whole church. All right, then in verses 25 through 27, it hammers this idea home. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. So again, sending them out in agreement so that the whole council is represented. Then comes the thrust of the letter, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So you get kind of a mix, right? What is the, what is, what's the idea? There's no greater burden, meaning this idea that we had dealt with before with circumcision. This is, this is not a requirement of your salvation, but we are going to give you these things. And then you get this list. Um, 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, basically that you're you're eating, you're not eating things that have blood in them. You're not eating things that have been sacrificed to idols. You're not eating things that have been strangled. Those first three things have to do with the things that you're consuming. And then from sexual immorality. So you get this mix of the moral law, which is abstaining from sexual immorality, and the ceremonial law, which is, has to do with this, this types of meat that you can eat that you find in like uh, Leviticus 17 and 18 and so forth. And it closes with this idea. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Well, you might be thinking, what? Didn't we just get rid of all of these requirements of salvation? Haven't we dealt with this now with circumcision? Didn't we deal with that with Peter and the sheets of reptiles and animals being lowered down? And Peter coming to this realization with the Gentile church that these aren't requirements. Didn't we just deal with all this? And now we're getting these things being tacked on. Well, the letter doesn't suggest that these are requirements for salvation. It does suggest that these are requirements to do well. But why add them? Well, I think the first that we'll look at, the first one, the abstinence from sexual immorality... This is a no-brainer. I think even for us, people who struggle with this even know that it's a bad thing. This is tied up in the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, which is the, the root for all types of sexual immorality. Sexual relations with anyone but your spouse is adultery. It is forbidden just like any other sin. Jesus even goes so far as to say that lust is just like committing adultery. So, if this is known, why bring it out? Why make this one stand above the other commandments? We could spend the rest of our time here, I think, talking about this idea, why this was brought out. But I want us to consider the culture the Gentile churches were living in. This was a Roman culture, a highly religious but very secular culture. They had these gods, but they kind of paid lip service to them. The, the church or the, the religion in Rome had become very secularized and very sexualized. Many of the pagan temples involved prostitution as a form of worship, and this stuff would have been all over the place. We only read about the synagogues that Paul and Barnabas went to because they weren't going to the other crazy things. But they were there. Right? Just, just look at the ancient ruins. Not only that, at this point in the Roman Empire's history, they were more and more defined by these sexual type of sins, the rape of slaves, and anyone really that they thought was lower than them, which was anyone who wasn't Roman. And they considered this an act of conquest. Pedophilia was very common because the view of women women, was very low. For men, it was women were basically used to have more sons. When men wanted an intimate relationship, they picked each other. So you can see why this is not good. Essentially, the Bible's view of the family, sexual relations are turned on its head in the Roman, Roman system. So what's happening here? Why would the Jerusalem church want to make this clear to the Gentile church? Don't get involved. Stay as far away as you can. 
What was Paul's word to the Corinthians? Flee from sexual immorality. I think that's clear to all of us. So what about these other things? All of them have to do with food, really. Eating things that, you know, that were sacrificed to idols. What's going on there? Well, they would, the, the people would sacrifice meat to the Roman gods, and then they would go out on the street and sell it for a bargain. All right? And meat, we take it for granted. We can go to Kroger and get meat, but meat was not easy to come by. If you didn't kill it and drag it home, you probably didn't eat it. And so when they were sacrificing it and selling it on the streets, it was cheaper. It was easy for the common man to have meat then. And so consider the situation. You're a new convert to the Christian faith. You're a Gentile convert. You live in one of these Roman cities, and there are a lot of Jewish Christians there as well. And you have got to know them, and you have them over for dinner, and you serve pork. Why would you do that? Or why would you buy meat that had been sacrificed to a Roman idol on the way home from work? You cook it up, you serve it, you maybe think nothing's wrong with it. Why would you do that knowing that your Jewish friends are coming over? That they're going to have a real problem with this. Is it wrong for you to eat pork? No. Is it wrong for you to eat that meat that was sacrificed to an idol? No, it's just meat. There's nothing inherently weird about it now. It's just been offered to a false god is it wrong for you to not consider the conscience of your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ absolutely let's put this in a situation I think that we can understand a little bit better we don't have uh, meat sacrificed to idol markets around here but we do have a party or something like that where uh, think about it this way we all understand that in Christ it's okay to consume alcoholic beverages if you're of age and you're legally able to do that. There's no direct prohibition to that in Scripture. Drunkenness is wrong, sure, but drinking a glass of beer or wine with supper, it's fine. We all agree on that, I think, at least mostly. But what about serving alcohol to a group of Christians at a get-together? What about drinking a beer at a restaurant while dining with a friend who was a borderline alcoholic? Are you free to drink beer? Absolutely. Should you in that situation? No. Because why would you poss- why would you want to cause a brother in Christ to stumble at all? So consider that situation that the that the people that the Jerusalem council is writing to. Gentile Christians, listen. You're going to be among Jewish people and this is the way they think. Just because you have this freedom it doesn't mean that they necessarily have it in their minds. And so Paul addresses this later. Romans 14. Turn with me there. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I highly encourage you on this subject to read from 12 to 15, really. Um, We've been going through 12 in Sunday school. We looked at the first part of 13 last week. And so I encourage you to look at this and it's full, but we'll look at just these Verses 14 through 18 here in Romans 14, I think because it really sums it up nicely. Romans 14, verse 14. This is Paul again talking to Gentile Christians in Rome. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, 
You are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy, or by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and is approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes peace for the mutual upbuilding. I think this sums it up great. The kingdom is not about eating or drinking. It's not about whether or not you think it's okay to do certain things on the Sabbath or not. It's not about our schooling choices or what version of the Bible that we use or whether or not we have drums in the worship service or whether or not we serve real wine at communion or just grape juice. These are not kingdom issues. These are preferences. All of these things are good things to discuss, but they do not define us as Christians. As soon as they do, we begin worshiping another God and believing in a different gospel. Jesus Christ defines us. His work saves us. Not any sort of righteousness we feel like we can derive from these things that we think are just ours. He is right. He is good. We are all undeserving, yet He accepts us anyway. He accepts us even when we argue about how to add ketchup to french fries, which is essentially what all of these other issues are compared to the infinite value of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so for the Gentile believers, this letter was to help them gain perspective and to keep perspective on the gospel, not to let little matters about how food is prepared to get in the way. It may be wrong for you to serve that meat to a Jewish Christian when they come over. When socializing with their Jewish brothers and sisters, it might be best for them to just follow a few simple guidelines in order to keep the peace. And that brings us to the next point, the church's response. So the church receives this in Antioch. How do they respond to it? Verse 31. And when they had read it, just quickly, they would have received this and then read it to the entire church. And they would have even passed it around to the churches at that point. This is how a lot of these letters became what we have before us today, which is this letter's included. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were encouraged by these words. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So how did they receive it? With rejoicing. They considered this letter a letter of encouragement. Not a lot here, but I think it's important for us to see sometimes this type of instruction in our lives can be very helpful. We should receive it as such. First, they rejoice that the church wasn't holding circumcision over them any longer. That's good. Indeed, it wasn't a requirement. They were seeing eye to eye on something that was very important. They were rejoicing because the gospel of Jesus Christ had won out in the end. This will always be a reason for the church to celebrate, even today. We should always celebrate that. But second, they rejoice that the church sent them the second part of the letter as well. The instruction on how they could do well 
in their new Christian environment, one with mixed or one mixed with Jewish Christians and new Gentile Christians. And don't miss this because I think many times we want to kind of take this instruction and you want to think, oh, never mind, I got this. I don't need any help, but thanks. This is actually a life-giving thing to learn from the others, on how, from other people, on how we should treat each other. I think I've told you all this story time and again, but I'm going to tell it again. As a young pastor, I had this mentality of, I'm just being honest. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And then I realized that people were beginning to get angry with me by the things that I said to them. And it didn't make sense to me. Because I was like, I'm just being honest. Well, I was an idiot. So I began realizing that I was an idiot. And so I had the church secretary read all of my correspondence before I sent it out. Why? Because I was bad at talking to people, basically. I was bad at seeming, at knowing what was rude and what was blunt. Everything I wrote, I thought, was just gentle and nice. But apparently I'm not always that way. Or I'm hardly ever that way. Come to find out, many people did not see that I was gentle and nice. Now, I could have taken this instruction. She was actually the one that came to me and said, Hey, you need need some work. I could have taken this instruction and thought, You just don't like the truth, that's all. And that's what I did with a lot of people, especially in my first church when I was a, a, an idiot kid. But I learned, and I realized that there's much to be learned from letting stronger Christians, more wise believers in the faith, instruct me in areas that I'm weak in. The church in Antioch is realizing this the same way, that the Jerusalem Christians were showing them how to live in this new environment that they had entered into. This is a good thing. That leads me to the next point, the Apostles' Division. Here we have starting at verse 36. And I think this last little section shows us what happens when we let little things divide us. Look with me at verse 37 and following. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Paul said, let's go to these other churches. Remember the churches that they had just visited in the province of Galatia. Let's go to these churches. Let's see how they're doing. It's a very pastor thing to do, Paul. Barnabas agreed, but he wanted to take this guy, John Mark. And you remember that John Mark left them, which he says. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one that had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and they departed for the provinces of Galatia. Paul didn't want John Mark to come. Barnabas wanted him to. Barnabas and John Mark, we find out in Colossians, they were actually cousins. They were related to one another. They had a strong relationship. This pair that had shared the gospel together in many harsh places, had suffered much persecution, had dealt with the Jewish persecution there in the province of Galatia, had brought the church together at the Jerusalem Council. Now they were splitting over this very simple disagreement. We don't get the impression that John Mark had some sort of besetting sin 
that kept him away. We don't really know. We just know that Paul did not want him there. Rather than saying what I think who about who is right or wrong in this situation, I'll just say this. There are some things to divide over. There are even some small things sometimes to divide over when the time is right. But we have to know that with any kind of division, there's going to be consequences with that. From this point forward, in Acts chapter 15, we do not read about Paul and Barnabas ever working together again. Paul mentions Barnabas in his letters. He mentions John Mark as well. He mentions both of them very highly and loved those men, but they never worked together again. We might divide over things like worship style, wine and communion. I'm just naming a couple things. There's several things that we could name there. But we better count the costs and understand the consequences. If we are making a little thing, the gospel, remember that there is only one true gospel and anything else makes an idol that leads people to death. There's only one that leads to life and it's Jesus Christ and he has the true gospel. If our hearts are in the right place, we feel like the decision is wise, maybe not everyone will follow, maybe it's not wrong. But we must pray for wisdom in these kinds of situations. So in conclusion, let us be believers then that cling to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his work alone that I will be judged by. Not my own piety, not my own adherence to some weird spiritual thing, but him alone, thankfully. Let us consider the conscience of others as we do ministry, as we practice hospitality, as we have people into our home and into our lives, they bring with them things that may not be a problem to us. And we have to consider that strongly. Keeping the peace is much more important than me displaying my version of right. Let us be people who keep the gospel and therefore Jesus Christ at the forefront so that people will know that he is Lord, they will call upon his name and be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be instructed by these words, that we would first and foremost see that there is one true gospel, and it has nothing to do with anything we can do, say, believe, want, but it has to do with what you have done for us. And so, Lord, help us to trust in that alone. But, Lord, also help us to consider others, the struggles they may be having, the difficulties of life, the simple things that they see as preferences over our own, that we might be, as far as it depends on us, at peace with all people at all times, for your glory, for your sake. It's in your name we pray. Amen.